This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Ian Murray serves as the Vice President of Strategy and Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which is a public think tank devoted to economic issues. Born in the United Kingdom, Mr. Murray earned his Master of Business Administration from the University of London and then a Master of Arts from Oxford University. He began his career as a public servant in the UK, working for Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and her successor, John Major. Since coming to the United States, Mr. Murray has published numerous articles, providing regular commentary in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, and National Review. He's the author of three books. His most recent book, The Socialist Temptation, is the topic of our conversation today. Ian Murray, welcome to Thinking in Public. It's a delight to be with you today. Your book is really important. I think it's the best one-volume work uh, in the current literature explaining uh, socialism is a uh, contemporary temptation and threat. But I want to back up just a little bit and say that uh, uh, arguably the rise of socialism in an organized, uh, political, intellectually understandable form is one of the uh, surprises of the last, to say, 20 years that shouldn't have been a surprise. I, I think that's very much the case. I, I, I come from that generation that... Uh, the, the, the thought that we defeated socialism, certainly in, in, in Britain, uh, that you had uh, some somewhat different threats uh, uh, over, uh, over here, but we thought we'd beaten it. And when the Berlin Wall came down in 1990, that was the end, we thought. Nobody could ever fall for this benighted ideology again. And yet somehow it has crept back in to the political conversation and crept back in in places that uh, it had never crept before. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to write The Socialist Temptation, to analyze why that had happened. Well, I think uh, actually your background in the UK is quite important for the writing of the book. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, my uh, formation was very similar to yours, and maybe at least in the same generation. I was born in 1959. And uh, when I came of age, uh, socialism was a very live idea in the UK, not so much uh, in the US, but uh, in the UK, it was a very live idea. Uh, we'll talk more about this uh, in, in the future of, of our conversation here. But uh, uh, the Labour Party was an officially socialist party in the UK in the 1970s when I was a teenager trying to uh, understand the world around me. But uh, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, the, the end of history, as uh, Francis Fukuyama infamously claimed, we did think it was, uh, it was defeated. But the one thing we had to recognize was that uh, the left never gave up on the, uh, the, the grand idea of socialism. So the political left, uh, and, and by that, I don't just mean Democrats and the Labor Party. That's, uh, that's uh, for later in the conversation. But the political ideological left never gave up on socialism. It's always been there. Uh, th th that's very much the case. And I think that, that, that you can see that most clearly in the uh, popularity of, of, of socialism and other hard left uh, ideals uh, in academia. Uh, when, when it had been defeated in the political arena, uh, it found uh, a, a new home and a very, uh, very nurturing one in the green halls of, of academe. Uh, in, in my book, I talk about how uh, back in uh, around 1990, there was a roughly 50-50 split between people who, uh, academics who regard themselves as liberals and academics who regarded them as conservatives. 
Now it's got to the stage where uh, the, the Conservatives are almost extinct. And in fact, they are outnumbered by those who regard themselves as hard left or communist. And socialists uh, make up most of the remainder. Well, those numbers are actually uh, quite firm. Uh, they're quite objectively true. And, and frankly, uh, the left uh, brags about them when it's convenient and then tries to obfuscate when, uh, when, when, when called on them. But you're right. Uh, the fact is that the hard left outnumbers anyone who could be considered uh, uh, conservative in elite academia. That, that is in, the, uh, in the, the campuses that are primary in ideological formation and cultural influence. And so we're really only looking at, uh, you know, even uh, in the Western world today, we're looking at something like 30 campuses that really determine the academic uh, and ideological tenor uh, of the rest of academia. And they're clearly, every single one of them, in the hands of, uh, of the ideological left and, and increasingly open about socialism. But I, I think we've committed a bit of a, of, a, of a fault here in the beginning of our conversation. We haven't actually defined terms very well. And uh, when I first uh, picked up your book, The Socialist Temptation, one of the first things I wanted to see is if you were brave enough to define your term. Uh, and you did. And, uh, and yet you recognize that it's a contested term right now. Oh, that, that, that's very much the case. I, I, that, 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 traditionally, socialism uh, was based on, on the works of, uh, of Karl Marx. There, there were some utopian socialists before him, but, but they're, they're essentially irrelevant. Uh, for, for well over uh, 100 years, socialism meant uh, uh, a philosophy that derived from the works of Karl Marx. And essentially, socialism, as it would uh, uh, would come to be put into into practice in countries all over the world were meant workers' control or popular control of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. So nationalization uh, of, of industry, uh, whether it would be total as it was in the Soviet Union or partial as it was in democratic socialist countries like the, the UK where, where I grew up. But that's after after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, something started to change. Uh, there was a, a, a morphing of what socialism meant. Now it got to the stage where if you try to debate a socialist and ask them what socialism means, uh, you, you can get uh, sort of, uh, motion sickness from the, the, the number of times that they move the goalposts. Uh, the, 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 uh, it, Sometimes socialism is just meant as be uh, just described as well, just being nice to each other, just being kind to each other. Well, uh, what does that mean for a, for a political process? Uh, th then we uh, get to the stage where they say, well, we we, we don't really mean we, we don't certainly don't mean all the uh, all the things that the Soviet Union did. We mean what happened in Scandinavia. At which point you have to ask them, well. <laughs> Didn't Scandinavia actually reject socialism in the 19, in 1980s? They kept the welfare state, yes, but they rejected a lot of the, the policies that you as socialists are talking about. So it can, it can get very difficult to get uh, a, a socialist to really define what they mean. But when you get down to it, when you look at the policies they are pushing, it's back to the old Marxist idea. It's yes. the well, popular control of the, of the yeah. economy. Now, I, I, I want to uh, suggest one uh, uh, etymological or linguistic uh, 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 matter here, and that is that I think in our context, in the American context, uh, English-speaking context, uh, you're clearly right when you say popular control, but that's going to be misunderstood because it actually means state control. Uh, it is, and Marx was actually quite clear about that in the, in the successive Marxists. So they, uh, they claimed that this would be in the name of the people, but... Uh, 
But, you know, when people hear about workers controlling the means of production and the means of distribution and the distribution of labor, it sounds like a good thing until you figure out that uh, it's actually not the workers. It's a vast bureaucracy in the name of the workers. This is exactly the, the, the point. They, they talk about democratic control. They talk about popular control, uh, workers control. But it only takes a moment's thought to, to, to realize that the workers, the people, uh, the democracy can't oversee all the all the myriad of uh, uh, of economic transactions that, that happen every day. They have to delegate that task. And every time socialism is tried, there is that process of delegation. That delegation is to a new class, a class of bureaucrats, of commissars, of apparatchiks, whatever you want to want to call them. But in the end, that new class essentially becomes a new ruling class. And this is why I say that anybody who wants to understand socialism, the first thing that they should do is read George Orwell's magnificent uh, allegory, Animal Farm. Uh, the, 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 the animals take over the farm, the, it, they, they, they paint their slogan, all animals are equal on the wall, and then the pigs take over, and eventually they start uh, walking on their hind legs, and that slogan is changed to all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And it's always the same with socialism. Yes, you know, uh, it reminds me of a, of a, uh, an anecdote uh, actually uh, uh, invented, of course, uh, but very effectively by the late President Ronald Reagan, where uh, he said that uh, in every country there are limousines and uh, there are people who drive little cars. But the difference between the United States and the Soviet Union is that when an American sees some uh, rich person goes by in a, uh, in a limousine, he says, everybody ought to drive a car like that. He says when the, uh, when the Soviet citizen, uh, the communist, uh, sees a limousine pass by, he says, no one ought to ride in a car like that. <laughs> and uh, yes, it, but, but the point is, there are limousines in both cultures. There, there, are, uh, there, there is a Politburo somewhere. Oh, indeed. The, 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 the Zill may not have been made by, uh, by, by Buick or, or, or Chevrolet, but it was definitely still a limousine. Absolutely. Uh, but about this, uh, the, this definition of socialism, uh, you know, th there has been an attempt to try to uh, democratize socialism. And uh, so we have uh, democratic socialism, we have, um, we have uh, social democracy, and they're not exactly the same thing. But nonetheless, they're accommodations of the socialist ideology to a, a democratic or electoral system of government, one way or the other. But the fact is, it never actually quite works out that way. Because, and I think the reason why it's so important to stick by a standard definition of socialism as, uh, as state ownership of uh, the means of production and uh, the means of distribution and the distribution of labor, it's because... Eventually, no matter what you call it, it has the power of the state behind it, and it has to use coercion. Margaret Thatcher, uh, the late British prime minister, was perhaps more eloquent than anyone else in saying you can't have socialism without someone uh, exercising massive coercion and confiscation. Well, th well that's it. In, in the end, uh, that uh, popular control, that workers' control, does actually devolve to, uh, to, to, to bureaucratic and uh, in many cases, unfortunately, military coercion. Uh, we, we see that uh, in those places where they really try to go all the way to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to that Marxist ideal of, of uh, democratic control of everything, it's always the military 
that is that, 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 that exercises that control, and it's the military who uh, who uh, who ends up uh, dragging people from their uh, from their beds in the middle of the night because they don't want to be coerced. You made reference to the fact that there were socialist utopian ideas before. Uh, Marx and, and, and Marxism, uh, Saint-Simon, uh, Robert Owen, uh, you had, uh, you also had, uh, I mean, even someone as classic as Plato, uh, you know, with some ideas that would uh, tend towards a common ownership in his own utopian, dystopian vision. But, uh, but nonetheless, when you're talking about socialism, you're exactly right to say we, we're tracing it back to Marx. These are various forms of Marxist thought, Marxist economics. But, uh, you know, the end of the 20th century came with the pretty clear revelation that it hadn't worked anywhere. And, and by that, I mean nowhere, not one square centimeter on planet Earth did socialism work. Well, this this is a very interesting phenomenon, and and I, I, I uh, how they have managed to get round that, uh, and I'm grateful to my colleague uh, Dr. Christian Nemitz at the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs in London for uh, for, for first uh, laying this out so uh, so adroitly. Uh, there's a three-part process that, that goes on with a socialist state. Uh, the first part is when uh, the, the social state has, uh, comes into being, whether through uh, democratic election or through revolution, uh, all the commentators uh, turn around and say, this is it. At long last, uh, the, the International Brotherhood of Man is here. We have a socialist state. This is real socialism. And then a few years later, uh, some of the internal contradictions of socialism start to bite, and the wheels start to come off the economy. And... Uh, Things aren't going so well. At that point, the second stage is these same commentators turn around and say, well, this can't be the fault of socialism, can it? Socialism is perfect. It must be the fault of wreckers or saboteurs, the old ruling class, or often foreign agents, the CIA. Uh, that's, I think, where we are with Venezuela at the moment. Uh, every good socialist worth his salt will say that what's happening in Venezuela is actually the fault of economic sanctions and uh, the CIA interfering. And then finally, when everything has gone to heck in a handbasket, when uh, there may, in the worst cases, be many thousands of dead, those same commentators who hailed it as real socialism turn around and say, well, it wasn't real socialism. It, uh, it, it can't be real, have been real socialism because it failed. And so this gives socialism a get-out-of-jail-free get card because when you, uh, when you turn around and say, you don't want to institute socialism because look at what happened in all these other socialist countries, they just say, oh, well, that wasn't real socialism. So uh, it's, it's, this time we're going to get it right. And as a result, uh, the, the, the history is always erased and uh, uh, socialists get away with saying uh, that it's going to be different this time. You know, uh, it makes me think as a uh, historian of ideas that uh... This uh, can be traced, at least in part, to the Hegelian uh, superstructure of Marxism, because uh, Hegel can never be disproved, uh, or a Hegelian, let me put it this way, will never admit that the theory has not worked, because they just misread at what point in the unfolding of thought they were. Uh, you just have to recalibrate your place in history. It's never recalibrate the idea. Um, but looking yeah, at... I, I think that's exactly right. Yes. Yes. Uh, looking at uh, Ed Marx, I mean, uh, who was, uh, uh, I did a thinking in public uh, just recently with uh, Paul Kingor uh, of Grove City College, who does such a 
phenomenal job once again of just demolishing the myth of Marks the man. I mean, it, it, just, just a horrifying human being, actually. And uh, and and with death and despair everywhere around him, uh, not by accident. Uh, and, and thus, his ideas actually didn't have much traction. He, and 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 uh, Marx and Engels both thought that this uh, socialist revolution would, would come in the great industrialized cities of the world, and there were nowhere uh, more industrialized than in the UK. And so it would be in Birmingham and Manchester, and especially in London. But it didn't happen, and instead, it happens in the arguably the least uh, uh, industrialized uh, of, uh, of, of the nations imaginable. That would have been Russia uh, at a moment of uh, the, uh, the imminent collapse of the Bolshevik, uh, excuse me, of the uh, Romanov dynasty. And, and, and yet they had to keep arguing that it was working. When, when, and they had fellow workers, their fellow travelers. They had friends of the communist revolution in, uh, in the English-speaking world who kept saying that it was working. but there were the signs from the very beginning that this was never going to work. It led to massive famine, the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. Oh, indeed. Yeah, the, one of the, the chapters of my book deals with the, the Holodomor, the, 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 uh, literally the, the killing by starvation uh, that, uh, that happened in, in the Ukraine when uh, Stalin uh, thought that, uh, realized that there, were, there was a class of, uh, of, of peasants who uh, had actually done quite well under the, uh, the, the old Tsarist regime and uh, were being resentful about what was happening to, uh, happening to them under, under communism. So he decided just to eliminate the kulaks as a class. Uh, so, uh, so, so, so this led to the, um, the, the one of the most tragic uh, periods in, in, in uh, Russian and Ukrainian history, uh, when, when you, so many people were dying that, this, that the Soviet authorities actually had to put up posters that said, uh, cannibalism is not a good thing. Uh, people were actually eating uh, their dead relatives. Uh, this all came about as a result of the, of the collectivization of land and the attempt to, uh, and, and the, uh, attempt to eliminate the kulaks as a class, and that obviously succeeded. But the, the ridiculous thing about this is that Western journalists, those commentators I was mentioning earlier, uh, such as Walter Durante of the New York Times, uh, actually saw this happening and ignored it, or in some cases willfully misrepresented it. And won a Pulitzer. And, and won a Pulitzer, which he still uh, the, the New York Times still uh, proudly uh, uh, has in its uh, uh, holes to this day. It has never been uh, repudiated. But uh, thanks to crusading uh, journalists like uh, uh, like Malcolm Muggeridge of the Guardian in, in in London and well actually Manchester in those days and uh, and the, uh, Mr Jones of who the, the, there was a, 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 fil a movie out at the moment which is well worth watching uh, uh, an American journalist who uncovered this truth and uh, finally revealed to the world that uh, that the, the went. People had said, I have seen the future and it works. Uh, it definitely was not working, and it was, in fact, killing people. Yes. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, I'm trying to find the right authors to read. And it was actually been a reference from William F. Buckley Jr. that I found Malcolm Muggeridge. And uh, when I was a teenager, there was no internet, obviously. Uh, and so, you know, I had to track it down and uh, use interlibrary loan to find some of his reports. But Muggeridge was so clear, and he gave me the, one of the categories that's had lasting significance in my 
in my thought, which is the great liberal death wish. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the reporting, which you cite so well in The Socialist Temptation, I mean, Muggeridge is saying, look, you don't have to have theory to understand the failure of communism. All you have to have is eyes. You also acknowledge the fact that if you go to the average, you know, 18 to 22 year old on a college campus, they actually are probably not going to answer in uh, defining socialism as the, uh, the, the, the state ownership of the means of production, means of distribution, distribution of labor. Instead, they're going to say something like, we want to be Sweden. But Sweden is not socialist. Just ask the Swedes. Just, just look at their GNP. Just look at their economic system. They're not socialist. That's exactly the case. If, if you look at uh, the, the index of economic freedom, for instance, at the, the Heritage Foundation, and you uh, look at the various ratings for economic freedom, uh, you'll find that, uh, that, that Sweden is about level in aggregate with the United States. But that includes uh, a, a massive marking down because of it, uh, the size of, it, of its welfare state. Uh, aside from the welfare state uh, Sweden, uh, and the level of taxation that is needed to support it, uh, Sweden is actually uh, a, probably a freer economy than the United States is. For instance, uh, Sweden has fully embraced school choice and the, it did so with the, uh, with the uh, enthusiastic approval of the teachers' unions. They have privatized large parts of social security. They, have, they, they deregulated and privatized the industries that they had uh, so much control over during the uh, uh, premiership of Olaf Palmer and uh, his, his fellow old-style socialists. Uh, they, they got rid of this in the, uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s and moved towards being a much freer economy. Yet, uh, if you would ask uh, the average socialist whether they are in favor of school choice, they will almost certainly say no. And so the, uh, the, so, so the, the, the rhetoric and the reality, again, do not match up. Uh, Sweden is not by any means a socialist country. Uh, and yet, uh, democratic socialists say they want to see policies which are much more socialist than Sweden, and then say they want to be like Sweden. It just doesn't add up. No, and I, I want to press you on a couple of points, and you actually deal with this very responsibly uh, in your book, uh, and I want to say that. Uh, if you do talk to these uh, college students or uh, graduate students even more dangerously, uh, or their faculty uh, teachers, uh, on many of these campuses, what you're going to hear is the statement, we want to be like Sweden, but actually the policies they're advocating are, are far more like Moscow than uh, Stockholm. And uh, yeah, you see this with someone like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, kind of the socialist of the, uh, of the moment. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've talked about on my program is the fact that uh, she is the current cover, a photograph of uh, AOC, as she is now iconically known, an iconic socialist, how you like that. Uh, she, she is now on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine, which is a very interesting barometer of America's uh, aspirational culture. But the thing is that uh, she's presented as this uh, non-threatening socialist, uh, democratic socialist. Let's put the word democratic in there, she insists. But the actual policies that she's suggesting are radically confiscatory. They, they have the hard fist of government. When you actually look at the Green New Deal, I mean, it could have come right out of a Soviet five-year plan. That, that's very much the case. Uh, it, 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 there's something very interesting going on in, uh, in in Europe, and I think this is being reflected in the um, 
the, the, the sort of socialism that AOC and her, her, her comrades in the squad espouse. If you look at the, the, what's happened to the, the old socialist parties in, in Western Europe, they, they, they've, uh, except for the Labour Party in Britain, they, they've virtually all eroded. Uh, they, they, they've, they've seen their, their vote share go down uh, in each successive election until now they're really minor players. What's replaced them is Green Parties. And those Green Parties, which uh, originally were all about, were, were, they, they used to call themselves ecology parties, and they were all about environmental policy. Now they are about... Uh, using that environmental policy as an excuse to reimpose socialism. Uh, so uh, the, the Green New Deal is half energy and environmental policy and half uh, New Deal policy, uh, a, a complete restructuring of the economy. And there are versions of the Green New Deal uh, all over uh, the Western world. Uh, the Green Industrial Revolution, it's being called in, in Britain, uh, uh, green deals, uh, you know, without the new part uh, in in much of Europe, uh, but the policies are all very much from the old socialist playbook. Uh, there are some new new tweaks, such as uh, replacing the welfare system with the universal basic income, uh, which um, you know, may may mean that the, that there's less means testing, which might actually be. Uh, an improvement on the current on the current welfare state, but nevertheless, the sort of levels that they're talking about for for, for universal basic income, uh, it's going to be very very hard to find the tax base uh, to to actually fund that. Uh, so, when you look at the actual policies of the Green New Deal, you realise that uh, you know th th there's a reason why some people uh, refer to this the the, the current the, this new version of environmentalism as watermelon environmentalism because it's green on the outside but red on the inside an apt metaphor uh, indeed and uh, and and again it points to the uh, dishonesty going on here because i'm looking at this vanity fair cover story you know about uh, aoc the the socialist but it is also taking the very expensive photographs of her in very very expensive haute uh, couture very expensive fashions those do not come out of Moscow. They certainly don't come out of Beijing uh, uh, or, uh, or Cambodia uh, under Pol Pot. You know, and, and it's this basic hypocrisy. And I, I think I, I see the same thing, and it frustrates me with all these college students who, in, by increasing numbers, and, and by, by some estimates, uh, more uh, college students support some form of socialism than any form of conservative thought right now, at least uh, on the college campus. And and yet they uh, they will pick up their their uh, iPhone and uh, and use the latest app and uh, and demand the latest uh, you know clothing and uh, all the latest uh, things uh, of a consumer society without recognizing that there isn't a socialist society on earth that's come close to producing anything like that because socialist societies don't actually uh, don't act, they don't actually produce wealth. One of this is because one of the first uh, things that, that 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 goes under a new uh, a socialist or a con or a communist regime is innovation. Uh, that's because the uh, uh, the, the innovator uh, loses all incentive uh, to to innovate. Uh, 
if, if, if the bureaucracy is in charge and the bureaucracy is going to be uh, looking over the, 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 their plans and the, the idea of permissionless innovation, such as we, we've had in, uh, in, in America and the Anglosphere, uh, that, that, that disappears. Everything has to be permitted. And then there's the question of confiscatory tax rates. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the, the history of uh, Britain and indeed Sweden in the, uh, in the 1970s, uh, you will see that uh, the tax rates reached as high as 95%. In uh, Britain's case, there was a super tax of over 100% at one point. That led to the Beatles, of all people, uh, recording a song called Taxman, uh, bemoaning that, 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 that their creativity uh, wasn't being rewarded, it was going instead to, uh, to the taxman. So, so innovation is a real casualty of, of socialism. But the socialists have, uh, have come up with a new argument, which is uh, the, the argument of the entrepreneurial state, which is that without the foundation of the, of, of, of the state, entrepreneurialism would be impossible. Uh, so, and this leads to uh, things like President Obama saying, uh, saying you didn't build that to entrepreneurs. And, uh, and so socialists have, 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 have got it in heads that innovation would be impossible without a degree of socialism. And so, again, there's a cognitive dissonance going on here. You know, this was a major issue of discussion amongst uh, conservative uh, uh, political theorists, and I was a, a, a part of many of those conversations 20 years ago, and it had to do with how minimal the state can be, which implied how minimal the state should be. And uh, so, for instance, uh, you would have the argument that uh, in an unstable world, in a dangerous world, uh, the first responsibility of, uh, of government in, in, a, in a democratic, uh, that is to say, uh, liberty-minded uh, uh, construct, it would be to establish adequate order for commerce and, uh, and society to function. And beyond that, to encourage commerce uh, in the only way that the state might be able rightly to do so, uh, which would be by, for instance, uh, guaranteeing the free passage of goods from one state to another, uh, you know, et cetera. But, but when you get beyond that, you, you begin to, uh, to, to reach the old chicken and egg problem. Uh, but the socialists always begin with the egg being the government. Uh, it, it's always the government. So when, when you talk about the, you know, the, the state entrepreneurism, uh, it, it implies that the state is the basic unit. It doesn't recognize that prior to the state is a pre-political society. Uh, and, and that's where the, uh, the, the state actually emerges out of that. It doesn't produce that. The state can't produce that. The, 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 the federal government did not produce the American people. The American people produced the federal government. Well, it, 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 this is uh, precisely the 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 the, uh, the, the point. The, uh, the 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 genius of, of of the West, and in particular the genius of, of the Anglosphere, has been to let the people. Uh, in, in many ways, it's a more democratic system than socialism because it is based in the in the genius of the people and trusting the people. So that the the the, the people can actually uh, come up with this sort of spontaneous order that uh, that, that that we see uh, that underlies uh, the most successful Western societies. Uh, in in the end, one one of the questions I, I I think that socialism fails to answer properly is how much do you trust the people? 
at, at their uh, in in their in their rhetoric, you'd think they would trust the people absolutely. But because of the of, of the way socialism is always uh, it, it is always implemented, it shows that there is no trust in the people whatsoever. Conservatives, uh, liberty-minded conservatives, have a, a shared concern with the far left about the issue of income inequality. A, sh- a shared concern. It, we, we both recognize it is a morally significant category. Uh, the question is to answer what causes it and then to actually define what it is and, and, and then to suggest a remedy. But income inequality is being used right now as a, an argument for the imposition of socialism, which after all could very well, uh, at least on a far broader uh, segment of the society, uh, create greater economic equality. But it would be the equality of reduction, not the equality of addition. Well, the, the, this is one of the the, the central issues of uh, with it, with income inequality is that the people who who seem to be the most concerned with it never really ask the question, how are the poor actually doing? Because when you ask that question and and, and look at the data that that, that answers it, you will see that uh, that that the uh, it is the poor do the best in economically free societies. Uh, and do the worst in, uh, in 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 societies where they are controlled in one way or another, whether by be by socialist or or, or fascist or authoritarian uh, re- regimes. Uh, if you uh, once you get beyond that, uh, you look you you start to look as as you were saying at the at the difference. Margaret Thatcher uh, put this brilliantly in her farewell speech in the House of Commons when she turned to the Labour benches and she said, you don't, you, you don't care if the poor is here as long as the rich are here. I would like to see the poor here and the rich up here. And that is, what, uh, that, that is the difference between the, 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 two, the, the two definitions of income inequality. The conservative def- uh, w- w- would like to see um, uh, income inequality. Uh, 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 well, sorry, the conservative would like to see uh, the, the incomes of everybody rise, so that income inequality ceases to be uh, a topic of conversation. Whereas the socialist would like to see everybody's income suppressed, so that there is uh, there is no theoretical problem. Of income inequality at all, but they're never going to say that. But but here here's how it works. Uh, so, and uh, you, you you spoke of the the poor. I'm going to speak of the middle class uh, for a moment because politically, the middle class is the center of gravity uh, in Western democracies. So, looking at this, the fact is that if you say to people, "Look, uh, there are going to be some Warren Buffetts. Uh, there are going to be some NBA stars. Uh, there are going to be some uh, speculators who are going to do very well." And are going to become mega billionaires. Um, and uh, what about you? Well, I mean, so there. Uh, if if you take an Elon Musk, his net worth is. I mean, I don't. I don't even have an exponential formula for it. But he's basically gone from being nothing to being now. They, they say the uh, second, third, or fourth richest man on the planet, depending on how you're counting. Uh, well, and he, he's he's worth thousands, if not tens of thousands, and more and more of me. Uh, but the bottom line is. I am economically vastly uh, advantaged over my parents. 
and they were vastly economic advantaged uh, over their parents. And, uh, and even in, uh, in my parents' adult lifetime, holding basically the same job for 40 years, uh, the, the house got bigger, the cars got bigger, uh, air conditioning arrived. Uh, you know, th this is the thing. Uh, so, but my parents' income may have doubled in 40 years, whereas it may have uh, been amplified a million times over uh, amongst others. But the fact is, my parents would not trade socialism where their income had stayed the same for 20 years. Uh, and I think that that uh, there's a fake resentment being built in here. And, and it's not to say that we don't want the middle class to do better. We don't want the poor to be raised up. We certainly do. We want to create the economic conditions in which that will happen. Uh, but we're not making very good moral arguments, I think, Mr. Murray. I, I, I think that's very much the case. Saying that there, there is a, a confusion between dollars and value. Uh, that 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 is fundamental to to the to, to this issue. Um, if you take, for example, uh, the the, 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 uh, the how 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 long you need to work uh, to uh, pay for an hour's worth of light. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, you actually had to work quite a, a decent chunk of time. Today, it is literally seconds that you uh, that, that the average person has to work. To get that hour's worth of light in, uh, Bjorn Lomborg, the, uh, the the skeptical environmentalist, uh, tells uh, t tells a story of how um, in, in in his day, King Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, had three hundred chefs at his disposal. Well, you know, if you have one of these and the DoorDash app, you have probably have three hundred chefs at your disposal as well. Uh, and yet, uh, in terms of relative worth, the uh, the, 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 the king uh, was theoretically much much wealthier than you. But would would you trade your position? Uh, the, the average middle class person would they trade their position for that uh, of, of, of the of the Sun King in an era before penicillin? Uh, as, as my wife likes to say, uh, there was no good old days before the invention of penicillin. Yes, uh, or modern dentistry. Let me add. Yes. Uh, and the flushing toilet, you know, in other words, you look at these uh, at these uh, inventions and how we take them for granted. And so, again, it frustrates me that you look at the magnates of industry that made their fortunes uh, and, and basically it's their heirs who give it away and subvert the, the very means whereby the wealth was created. But uh, you, you have the campuses that have the buildings named for them where people enjoy the air conditioning, the constant Wi-Fi, I mean, all the goods, and, and they demand even more. And yet they declare themselves absolutely opposed to the only conditions in the history of humanity that have produced them. It, it, it's astonishing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I remember I, I was in a, uh, caught up in a de demonstration, one of the poll tax riots uh, in, in, in Britain uh, in, in, the, in the 1980s. And the, 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 there was a, uh, an anarchist hanging from, from, from a lamppost uh, with a, what in those days was a very expensive camera. Of course, these days we have cameras in our phones, but in those days they had a, a, he had a very expensive camera. And I yelled up to him, property is theft. And he just uh, grinned at me and uh, started to take, <laughs> take pictures of me. Uh, so it, 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 this, this isn't a, 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 new, uh, a new phenomenon, but, but by any means, uh, the, the, uh, 
it is one of the great hypocrisies of, of socialism over the years that they will take advantage of the benefits of a free society in order uh, to try to overthrow it. Uh, Mr. Murray, I want to test a theory with you along those lines. Uh, and uh, this is a theory that has uh, emerged from my own experience in uh, academic engagement. Uh, the people who have what they believe to be the uh, intellectual advantages, the, uh, the goods of higher education, they believe they're going to come out on top regardless of the formal situation. So it's, it's always about the other people. And so this is one of the frustrations I have when I'm, I'm talking to uh, uh, people on the left on American college campuses. They, they, they are not about to give up their tenure. They're not about to give up their endowed chair. They're not about to give up their you know, private parking space. But it's always about the other people. And it reminds me again of that Orwellian uh, uh, insight, which is this is always done on behalf of someone else, whether the someone else wants it or not. Oh, indeed. And of course, as Margaret Thatcher once said, <laughs> uh, the, the trouble with socialism is that you uh, eventually you run out of other people's money. And that uh, those other people are very often uh, the, 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 the middle class or the people that, uh, that the socialists claim to be, uh, claim to be championing. Just to return to Sweden for a minute, one of the, the, the things that, uh, that today's democratic socialists never admit they, they, they will say, oh, we only need to raise taxes on the rich. We, if we raise taxes on the rich, we can pay for everything. But if you look at the welfare states like Sweden, they can't, can't pay for the, for the welfare states just from taxes on the rich. They have to have very, very high levels of taxation on, uh, on, on, the, on the middle classes. So uh, you know, the, the, I think seven, the, it's something like 70 percent. Uh, tax rates uh, when you get to about eighty thousand uh, dollars in in Swedish equivalent. Uh, so uh, so there's always a very very high tax burden placed on the uh, on 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 the the people that they that they claim to, uh, claim to champion. And and one final thing about the intellectuals: remember what happened in Cambodia, where just having glasses was viewed as a sign of being uh, the, uh, an enemy of the state. Yes. The ability to read. That was enough. Uh, in, in thinking about uh, Sweden, just to, to take an example, one of the things that's also often not acknowledged by the left, and especially with the, the Green New Deal, is the fact that the welfare states of much of Scandinavia have been underwritten by North, North Sea oil. Uh, you know, in other words, uh, right now, if you're an economist in Scandinavia, you're white, you're quite, let me start that over again. Right now, if you are an economist in Scandinavia, you're quite concerned about how the welfare state can be sustained. Uh, because uh, one way or another, that, uh, that carbon income is leaving. Yes, well, the, the, I, um to, to, to be fair to Sweden, uh, they, they didn't have that. They, they're not on the North Sea, and they don't have much of the North Sea oil. But right, but the rest Norway, of Scandinavia does. Just next door. Yes, that, that's exactly that. That's exactly the case. Norway has a, a sovereign wealth fund, which is uh, you know, the, the source of, of a lot of the country's income. But at some point, that's that, that's going to start winding down. And you know, we we, we see uh, you know the, the, my equivalent, the, the the think tankers in Norway are trying to work out how on earth uh, to, to deal with this, 
and generally the, the answer that they're coming up with and an answer that Norwegian people seem increasingly uh, uh, sympathetic to is that they need to free up uh, you know, their, their economy somewhat. So I, I think it'll be very interesting to see uh, which direction Norway uh, goes goes in. Does it go down? Uh, does it go down the route of uh, uh, say uh, some of the Eastern European countries that have not done terribly well, like uh, Belarus and so on, or does it go down the, uh, the, the the road that Sweden and Britain have gone down? And dismantle uh, their the, 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 uh, the, the large state. I think it's probably going to be the latter. I think so too, because that raises another huge point. And by the way, one little footnote here I have to say as a proud American and a concerned American uh, is that uh, if you look at much of Western Europe, uh, they're also able to fund a welfare state because they're not spending what they should be spending on national defense. And uh, the United States and its nuclear umbrella and NATO have, uh, have given them extraordinary. Uh, infusions effectively of cash by the trillions of dollars. And so forgive me, that's a footnote. But the, the larger issue is, uh, I, I was looking at something last night and uh, someone said uh, the now discredited Laffler curve. Uh, and, and you remember that, uh, the, the curve, which had to do with uh, uh, the fact that if the government taxes 0%, it receives zero income. But if it taxes 100%, it receives zero income because the economy dies. And, and the thing is, is is that that curve is not discredited because it's self-evidently true. The meaning of it is open to interpretation. But similarly, I, I argue that there's a tax curve in, uh, in, in democratic governments. And one of the interesting things about the November the 3rd elections here in 2020 is that the most liberal state in the union, arguably California, the voters turned down a tax increase. And, and frankly, it was a tax increase that was disguised, so it didn't even look like it was a tax increase on the middle class, but rather on, uh, on corporations. But voters in the most liberal state in the union saw through that. And so my argument is that the, 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 the uh, limitation upon socialism uh, in the Anglosphere is, is the voter. And uh, that certainly uh, is a, it, it, that's what you could speak of better than I. Uh, as uh, the UK experience, uh, but but even in California, it turns out they're not ready to go socialist, even though they just elected a president by sixty-seven percent who's committed to some form of it. Well, yeah. So the, 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 uh, what, what's very interesting is that in uh, all the major economies of the Anglosphere, uh, just whatever the highest tax rate is you never get more than about 30, 33% of uh, GDP actually paid in taxes. Uh, you know, the, 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 there's a sort of resistance to high taxes that, that, that's built into, uh, built into uh, uh, our economic reaction to taxation. So we will find ways to avoid that, uh, to, to avoid paying the, uh, the, the tax when it's uh, at, at, at very high levels. So, so, so there is that bound that's that, 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 that's there. It's almost an iron law uh, that, that that you can't get above that level uh, of taxation, and that's in many ways is, is the Laffer curve uh, in, in, in action. Um, but what's very interesting about California, I think, in the recent elections is not just the, the, the rejection of uh, taxation, but also, uh, for instance, the rejection of the uh, attempt to uh, destroy the idea of independent contracting, to say that you must be an employee 
rather rather than a, 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 a free contractor. Uh, the Californians rejected that uh, by a massive margin. And that shows that 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 that, that, that level of individual enterprise, that 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 that, that belief in, uh, in in making your own future, uh, of which independent contracting and freelancing is probably the most uh, the, the purest form. Uh, there's still a belief, even in California, that that must be an option for people. And for that, I th that I think is a, a great demonstration of the American spirit of work. Now, by the way, that gets back to your point, however. Uh, the argument is that uh, California voters were just victims of being uh, uh, infused with false consciousness. Uh, they voted against their own values, as, uh, as the left would say, uh, when in reality, they want to be able to use their app and call an Uber car, and they might want to work for Uber and work two hours a week and not be told that they have to be full-time employees. Exactly the, the case, and they, they they want to be able to use that DoorDash app uh, with with independent contractors uh, delivering the three hundred the products of the three hundred chefs to them. You uh, do something else in your book, The Socialist Temptation, that I think is uh, is actually incredibly helpful, uh, and that is it's it's so up to date. You're in conversation with the people on the left right now who are really pushing uh, socialism and doing so quite effectively. One of them is uh, Baskar Sunkara. Uh, and uh, through Jacobin Magazine. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I've been following this. Uh, again, to me, it's just a, it's the perfect example. I mean, here you have a very slick magazine that could only emerge from a consumer culture uh, attacking, actually, pretty honestly, uh, uh, the economy that produced it. Uh, I picked up uh, his book, The Socialist Manifesto. Now, what surprises me, Mr. Murray, is that this is really old style uncut socialism. And I, I don't think I don't think most Americans recognize how influential, however, uh, 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 Sunkara is, for instance, in the modern Democratic Party. Well, <laughs> this is exactly it. When <clears throat> when people uh, say that they they only want to be like Sweden, uh, their democratic socialists they only want to be like Sweden. They really have you really have to push them on that and get beyond. Uh, that, that that initial piece of rhetoric and ask them what their policies are because they'll inevitably come up with policies like those that Bhaskar Sankara uses uh, 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 not just promotes but lords in 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 the in the socialist temptation uh, policies which are far more radical than any uh, Western Socialist Party has uh, has espoused uh, apart from the British Labour Party in recent years. But they're far more radical than those any Western Socialist Party has uh, has espoused for, for at least fifty years. Uh, it really, is turning back the clock to a, a, a putative golden age uh, of, of socialism that never really existed, uh, and uh, it's particularly interesting that he that he says that that the uh, the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, presents uh, a, a marvelous opportunity. We'll at last be able to see how these policies uh, work properly because previous times weren't real socialism, as we discussed before. And what happened to Jeremy Corbyn in the, uh, the British general election of 2019? He was routed, just defeated ignominiously. The worst electoral performance a, uh, a, a Labour Party leader has ever had since the foundation of the party. Uh, so but that's just because British voters don't know what's good for them, Mr. Murray. 
Indeed, the false consciousness is there. But even the members of the Labour Party, as I said, said they'd had enough and got rid of Jeremy Corbyn and replaced him with a much more Blairite moderate uh, who uh, actually expelled Jeremy Corbyn from the party when uh, their, their own internal inquiry found that he was uh, uh, complicit in anti-Semitism. Yeah, you, did, you didn't uh, need an is, inquiry. Is you, just, you just needed a search engine. Uh, his anti-Semitism has been there in public for a very long time. Uh, by the way, uh, as uh, as I was looking at uh, Bhaskar Sunkara's uh, book, The Socialist Manifesto, which again is, is beautifully packaged, you know, this is uh, this is exactly what you see in the front table of an American uh, you know bookstore. Uh, what shocked me in this, and and I I like to think sometimes I really can't be this shocked, but I was shocked in that uh, uh, Sunkara argues that the uh, the Corbin Bernie Sanders moment. Is, is not enough because they're democratic socialists. He wants far more fundamental socialism. But he wants to take advantage of it. But he, he applauds Bernie Sanders because he says uh, Sanders is committed to increasing class antagonism. And, you know, that's true. It's kind of obviously true. But to say it out loud in the United States, I'll admit I was shocked. I still am. He was just telling you I'm still shocked. I mean, how many... How many people who went and voted for, uh, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders in a primary, for that matter, consider themselves democratic socialists or, you know, some kind of socialist on college campuses know that what this is calling for is tearing apart Western civilization? When you... Uh, when you have an unreconstructed Marxist like uh, Baskar Sankara, you have to go back to Marx and you have to look at uh, the rhetoric that was involved in in Marx's uh, in, in Marx's work. It's it, it, when you read Marx, it's clear that the class struggle is central to his philosophy. And socialism without the class struggle, I think somebody like Bhaskar Sankara uh, would admit, uh, is meaningless if you are a Marxist. So. It, it it should come as no surprise that 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 uh, the, the the foremost uh, Marxist in uh, in in American politics is all about the class struggle. But that but means when, telling American you, middle class people that they really are being oppressed, and convincing them that they would do better under another system. And I still believe, maybe it's just my American optimism. I still believe that the response to that has to be good luck with that. <laughs> I, uh, I I believe that, that that will be the case if the if 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 a policy package like Vasco Sankara's is ever actually submitted to the voters. Actually, I think it has been. I think there there have been American socialist uh, candidates uh, in, in 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 the past, and they've got one or two percent of the vote at at most. Worse than worse than the Libertarian Party, uh, which is saying something. Uh, but the the the, um, uh, the 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 fact is that the. The policies that socialists actually want to see put in place are just antithetical to the idea of American freedom and American entrepreneurialism and America, uh, uh, American values uh, at, at, at their most basic. Uh, and, and that is, I think, the, the, the reason why socialism will always remain a temptation in America and will never actually uh, uh, succeed at the ballot box. I pray you're right. Uh, your book, The Socialist Temptation, is, I've said it before, it's brilliant. It's extremely timely. Uh, but it was written before the election in the United States and uh, released before that. So I just want to ask you in closing, 
Bring us up to date after November the 3rd, after uh, developments in the UK. What, 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 what is your up-to-date uh, synopsis of where we stand since you completed the book? I, th I think what what we saw was uh, very interesting from the ex polls and everything that showed that especially immigrants, uh, especially those from from South American countries that that have called themselves uh, socialists, they rejected uh, socialism, uh, the, the 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 association of the social of socialism and the Democratic Party. They rejected that absolutely. And that helped uh, propel many uh, Republican uh, candidates uh, to, to, to victories that most people probably didn't see coming. So I think what, what, what we, we're beginning to see a, a debate within the Democrat Party about whether or not uh, being associated with socialism is actually an electoral advantage. And uh, at the moment, it looks like, uh, the, the, like the socialists are, uh, are, are playing on the back foot. But I do worry, as I mentioned earlier, environmentalism has replaced socialism in much of Western Europe. And I think what we'll see is a pivot from talking about socialism to talking about environmentalism and to, uh, talking about green policies uh, rather than socialist policies. And I think we'll, we'll, we might still end up with a lot of the same, uh, same policies being pushed on us, just not in the name of the people, but in the name of the environment. And uh, what's required is uh, honest men and women speaking honesty uh, in, and truth uh, into this situation. You've helped us with your book, The Socialist Temptation. Ian Murray, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. Many thanks to my guest, Ian Murray, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find well more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.